0: Story Futures Academy.
1: Audience research into new immersive forms is a fairly nascent discipline, but around the world we're gathering data, data about how people are responding to these new forms of storytelling. Whether you're starting to think through your first immersive prototype for people to play in their living rooms, or planning to launch a VR experience at Westfields, understanding how your story is going to be experienced and who you're going to target is a massive question that should be dealt with upfront rather than after you've built it. I'm Shahani Fernando, and this is the Story Futures Academy podcast.
0: I find myself floating, floating, floating. Welcome to virtual reality, window. or we are right now the Earth. You don't know what it's like to stand where I'm standing. Just look around you. You are going to undergo
2: many different kinds of reactions.
1: In this episode, we're going to find out about some specific immersive audiences and their behaviors. Think about key questions makers should be asking, and look at how immersive work is presented to audiences to make the barriers to entry as low as possible. We want you to think about the important questions that need answering about your work that will make it more user-friendly, more powerful, and ultimately will reach more people. Today we'll hear from three people who are all passionate about different aspects of audiences and accessibility. And just to note that they're mainly speaking about virtual reality rather than other immersive forms, so it's not fully comprehensive, but it should give you a few broad themes to think about whatever platform you're working on. So to begin with, let's go to a place that attracts huge audiences on a daily basis, the National Gallery.
2: I'm standing in the National Gallery and I put on the headset and when I look around the space, I can see that there's a very high ceiling and arches and I turn around and I can see all around me that I'm in the chapel. When I look out the back door of the chapel, I can see the room in the National Gallery that's actually behind me, even though I have this headset on. So somehow I'm in a chapel that's within the National Gallery. It's fascinating. This is Dr. Larissa Whittaker. She's an audience insight research
1: fellow at Royal Holloway and part of Story Futures. Her PhD was in ethnomusicology and her job is to understand what is happening to you when you go into an
2: immersive experience. And I turn back around and I see the painting in front of me that I just saw on the wall in front of me before I put on the headset. And some motion catches my eye and I see a monk approaching me from the left and he speaks to me and he asks me what I think of this painting. And then in a minute, another monk comes in and they start having a conversation and I'm able to overhear, I'm able to listen to them and discussing this painting and how it came to be hanging there.
1: Virtual Veronese was an R&D immersive prototype that reconnected Paolo Veronese's The Consecration of St. Nicholas that hangs in Room 9 at the National Gallery with the original context and story of its commission. It was created by Focal Point VR, who won Story Future's first industrial challenge in 2019. Larissa spent many hours gathering qualitative data at the National Gallery about the audiences who tried
2: it. I've always been interested in understanding how people make sense of the activities that they engage in. So when I was you know, studying during my PhD, it was trying to understand how people make sense of the musical activities and what those mean to them. Um, Now, looking at immersive, I'm trying to understand, well, what is it people value about immersive experiences? How do those experiences become part of their lives? What role do they play in their lives? And what does it bring to them that they couldn't experience in another way? For a maker new to this space, what's
1: the point of doing audience research at an early stage?
2: The more you can know, really, about your audience and the potential differences between the people who might be putting that headset on... The better you can create an experience that's likely to resonate with them um, and l- be less likely to encounter problems with with reception or with rollout. Uh, one concept that we've been thinking about a lot is an idea of friction as being a point where there's an encounter between a human being and a piece of technology that is a really interesting and exciting thing to think about because that human being is very complex. Um, they have sensory sort of responses. They have physical responses. They There are practical sort of interactions with that technology. There's physical and emotional responses. And those are all potential points of of encounter, but they're all potential points of conflict. So in, in a sense, this kind of friction is really integral to technology. At the same time, you want to think about what those points of, of friction might be. And depending on the diversity of the person in your headset, like if they're somebody who's never played a game, a video game in their life, that person is going to have a very different approach to using a controller for a VR experience than somebody who's an experienced gamer. So thinking about that simple fact of the level of user experience, being aware of what is lost or what is to be gained at any of those potential points of friction, I think can be a really useful way of thinking about design. What sort of questions should a maker be asking to that prospective audience? One of the things that we suggest when we're working with people designing experiences is to think about who it is they're imagining doing this experience and what is it that they can experience there that they couldn't experience in another way will people want to share about that experience? Will they want to um, tell others about it? If you had to pay for this experience, what would you pay? You know, checking things on how people feel during the experience. Do they feel any kinds of nausea? Do they feel in a positive way, like they're immersed in the experience? How real does it feel to them? How real do the characters feel to them? And in a
1: way, it's really useful to ask these questions before the piece is finished, isn't it? I mean, from a testing perspective, as a maker, I'd like to know the answers to them before I fully sign off. Because otherwise,
2: in some ways, it's just too late. We've been thinking about, actually, maybe there's three stages. Questions of inclusion really have to be framed at the beginning. And then during design, I think it's really valuable to get iterative feedback from audiences on even discrete elements of your experience. Does it have the effect that you were intending it to have? And then the final prototypes, obviously, when you have the thing together as a piece, what is the audience response to that? So audience insight is, is a really useful tool at all stages of development, I think.
1: What else is the team at Story Futures trying to learn through audience research? What other insights are emerging?
2: I mean, one of the really interesting things that comes out of our early research is that, People are really looking to have a social experience, which in some mm. ways is a little bit in conflict with the technology design itself <laughs> of, a, of a VR headset, um, which is in many ways a very, you know, isolating experience. You put that headset on and you're cut off from the world. It's really interesting to me to see in our research how much people really want to share that experience by doing it at the same time. So people are, you know, enjoying multiplayer sort of experiences or some social VR type of experiences. As
1: well as being aware of the social aspects of experiencing VR, the actual spaces where immersive experiences are consumed is something that makers really need to think about, isn't it? I know you've been conducting a large longitudinal study at Royal Holloway about how young people use VR at home. Is there anything emerging from that work yet?
2: I think one of the big things for us was to see how they made it a social experience. We kind of anticipated giving students a headset. They would, you know, disappear to their rooms and uh, just sit on their beds or go in their bedrooms and do VR, you know, for hours at a time. I've been surprised at the really creative ways that they have made this something social. They're, by and large, not sitting in their rooms doing VR by themselves. They're finding ways to experience that with others. So people want to play in public? Exactly. They're going into their living rooms and the shared space there. But a lot of them have been telling us about how eager they were to take it to their family homes. I, I kind of was surprised that how much this age of students still wanted to take the headsets home to their mum and dad um, and have them try it out. We had lots of nice stories about how people took turns, the aunties, the grandmas. They're thinking about this as quite of a family experience and a family device. So,
1: it becomes clear from talking to Larissa that some of our initial assumptions about VR usage might need updating. VR is a more social experience than a headset would initially suggest. People really want to share what they've experienced in VR with others, and the space where people are actually doing immersive experiences plays a big role in how people feel about it. Perhaps then, before launching into making a new experience, it's really useful to think about how you're going to reach people with it. Someone who spent a huge amount of time thinking about how to reach diverse audiences with virtual reality content beyond the early adopters is Catherine Allen, CEO of Limina Immersive. Her public virtual reality programme in Bristol reached over 15,000 people and her insights from those screenings are really interesting to look at for anyone considering making and showing their own work. Catherine, what are some of the latest findings in terms of what kinds of audiences are seeking out these immersive experiences?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting to see the sorts of people who feels comfortable in the world of virtual reality, who doesn't. Interesting, and from a personal perspective, and I think many others feel this as well, a bit depressing in that there's not great diversity. Um, The distribution of, let's say, you know, VR is the future, it really isn't evenly distributed. Mm. So, for instance, um, young men are much more likely to own a virtual reality headset than any other group. Um, that comes from Ofcom data and from a 2019 survey and other, many other surveys as well. Um, lots of research has shown the same thing. And I suppose it shouldn't be surprising because the heritage of the R, a lot of it comes from a gaming space. That doesn't mean we should just accept it Um, I feel that this new medium should be something for everybody. It's, you know, it's a superpower. It's quite fantastic that humans have this art form. So it should be something that we should get to more people. So yes, while 6% of households have a VR headset, it's really not evenly distributed. People from upper socioeconomic groups are almost twice as likely to own a virtual reality headset than those from what Ofcom describe as lower socioeconomic groups. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's lots of disparity, gender, Um, where people live, rural versus urban, age, and also um, background as well. That's why I feel that we really need to crack this issue about how we get emerging technologies, emerging creative technologies more generally, not just VR, but to broader audiences. Mm. How can we build a normal? How can we just make it something that people do as part of their daily life, which is as natural as even turning on the TV at the end of a long, busy working day?
1: One of the things you were trying to do at Limina was really looking at widening participation. Tell us what the company set out to do. Yeah, so at Limina, we
3: set out to broaden access to this incredible new medium, and we saw arts and cultural content as the very best way to do this. So we partnered with arts venues, cultural venues across the UK, and very much so as well in our home in Bristol with Watershed, which is an independent cinema based here. But we we met audiences in the middle. We found a way to experience virtual reality that felt quote-unquote normal, that fitted in with people's daily lives. So there was already that slot of going to the cinema or going to the theatre, the date night even, the family Mm. afternoon out. We fit into that slot by bringing an out-of-home, collective virtual reality experience to people in a way that was accessible and from our perspective and the venue's perspective, super scalable as well and pretty simple.
1: So it was kind of like a cinema theatre model. You'd buy a Mm. ticket... You'd sit in, I remember, this lovely room, beautifully curated. How many people could you have at a time? So we got to the point where we could have
3: about 21 audience members in. Um, the problem is if you go much higher, you don't get such a close duty of care. So the ratios between what we call our VR hosts and our audience members, is very important to get that right so that people do feel super safe, super attended to. And there's that bond of trust as a foundation
1: which can then help people let go and help them have a better experience. And how did you curate these experiences? Was it based on subject matter or things you thought would appeal to particular groups? It was like a pick and mix. So we had one night it was nature experiences, the other night
3: it was documentary, just to see. And to be honest, we kept that pick and mixiness within sort of cultural creative space for maybe a year and a half by taking lots of different content, types of content around the country different venues, seeing what audience members wanted, doing surveys with them afterwards, focus groups, et cetera. So what we found was popular content tends to be where there's a sense of mood change. It takes you on a journey. Yeah, so rather than being like told a story, it was more about the experiencing a story for themselves. So story doing or story yes. being rather than being told something, which, you know, it helps inform what sort of storytelling works for virtual reality, I think. And often it will mean that they come out buzzing or they come out calm and soothed, maybe finding something really amazing, wonderful, that they're in awe of. Really popular shows we had was our Ocean Body and Mind show, which... uh, Takes you on a sort of oceanic adventure where you meet yogic free divers, dancers who perform a style of uh, Canadian break dancing in this uh, very um, feminist way um, on the mudflats of Vancouver, all the way through to sitting on a boat and learning about coral reef destruction in a, a place off Indonesia. That kind of experience really was popular. Took people on a mood change journey for sure. Um, the ultimate way people came out often was like reflective that was a a word that was often used and calm and then our Cirque du Soleil show which we then later took on tour was the other super popular experience obviously there's a known brand there Cirque du Soleil but also talking to audience members they came out
1: feeling really giddy and buzzing (laughs) at the whole spectacle I think what Lemon has done brilliantly is actually creating these gateway experiences for people who are new to VR to try something and then be hooked because the quality is so high. But often people can be put off by stuff that they're seeing online of 360 content or other bits of VR. I mean, what are the real barriers to growing a VR audience, do you think? What are the solutions to making it more mainstream? I think it's looking at the
3: sociological barriers.
1: Hmm. Is maybe
3: an underlooked area. So, for instance, leisure time and who gets leisure time and who doesn't get so much leisure time. So, for instance, women get, on average in the UK, according to uh, Office for National Statistics, five hours less leisure time a week than men. How How do men spend that extra time that they get? Two out of those five hours are spent on computing and hobbies, which is where VR would probably go. If you have less leisure time, then that leisure time is a more precious resource, which means you're probably less likely to take risks with it. And there's things that we can do as a sector, as creators, to de-risk this new medium for our audiences. And the tactic that we found was familiarity things within the mix that are familiar so for instance a familiar brand like Cirque du Soleil or even a familiar topic like oceans and mindfulness if there's nothing that they recognize within that marketing poster or advert on Facebook say they're just not going to risk their time on it Uh, we also found people talked a lot about needing to feel safe and secure and once they felt that foundation then they were able to experiment and push themselves out of that comfort zone but if you don't have that foundation of safety where you feel like Your bag is being looked after. You're not going to have people taking a photograph of you that you don't know. You're not going to be laughed
1: at by your friends. And all this, this is really just about looking after the audience that you're serving, isn't it? I mean, what do makers need to think about when they're designing experiences at the beginning about how they're going to be consumed? So, I suppose, first of all, I think what control do you have
3: over the audience members' context for which they're experiencing it? So, for instance, if you're looking at LBE, location based entertainment, then you can give guidance or just check that the organisation exhibiting that are following certain principles. Do the audience members feel safe? Is, is it something where they might not have privacy? Or do they have privacy? So if you go through and check that exhibitor is doing that, so mm. that you know forms part of your contract even. But if you're making something for home entertainment then you can give as part of the the app store copy, I suppose it's called, you can give guidance there. You could include maybe even a welcome ritual into the beginning of the experience and then you could include something grounding for when you want to come out of it.
1: What good practice models have you seen around the world in terms of innovative ways that makers are kind of reaching audiences?
3: Yeah, I've seen some... Very interesting, different approaches. And I've spoken to the exhibitors from, say, China, from Australia, various VR cinemas in Europe as well. So talking to the team who run the Shanghai Virtual Reality Cinema, it was very interesting to learn about how, whilst they don't have an appointment to view setup where you buy a ticket beforehand the audience will come in at the same time it's more of like a walk-in experience they still have the same findings around familiarity of the space and Mm. having a a context which feels the same every time you go a a space that's dark and secure and when you come out you you can just sit there for a bit they have these lovely kind of egg chairs that you can do that in Mm. so they really got the idea and I think really excelled here that you, that you need to feel safe to the extent where they built their own special proprietary egg chairs.
1: Do you literally <laughs> have your own cocoon? Thanks to Catherine for all her insight on how to attract audiences to immersive stories. But she's not alone in terms of people trying out new models of getting content out to new audiences. In 2019, the BBC experimented with an innovative way of getting their VR content to people that wouldn't normally be able to access headsets. Here's Zilla Watson, formerly head of the BBC's VR hub, talking about their Libraries
0: project. The
1: BBC Library project
0: was an experiment to see whether VR good stories worked in people's local libraries. It was managed through a partnership with Libraries Connect. And and what we did was we produced a pack on how to use VR, some little posters people could personalise and print out for their library. And we created a schedule that involved, in the end, over 175 libraries around the country. The libraries had the headsets for a few days and then they posted them onto the next library. They ran it in a very collaborative way through a base camp and shared pictures and shared tips and things. And we supported that from the BBC with with Dinah Lammerman running that project. And it was tremendously successful. It also, our other purpose for it, generated some really impressive audience research, which without question showed how memorable VR experiences could be for audiences. People remembered after watching our films about the Congo standing on Kinshasa station a couple of months afterwards, and it really did appear to make them more interested in watching news about Africa, which is part of the BBC's purpose for it. So, so it was, a, it was a, a really important model for to demonstrate that we could find a distribution mechanism that was quite cheap and got to the sort of people that BBC really wanted to be able to try VR rather than just early adopters who had money to go to more commercial events.
1: I think it's really fascinating because I'm looking at some of the stats now. You know, 92% said that they would talk about it with other people and 85% said they would go to more events like that. So, I mean, that's a resounding success in terms of reaching first-time um, audiences
0: for VR. What else needs to happen to try and make it more accessible? So I'd say it's a mixture of things. There does need to be better content and it needs to be the right length for what people want wherever they are. And we don't have the answers to those questions yet. They need to be able to find the content they want. Again, BBC studies and a study at Bristol also shown that people found it really hard to find content through stores at the moment. So curation and searchability of that content is, is critical too. And then the third thing is a form factor thing around the hardware. It's still clunky. It's still not great to clean if you're using it between different people. It needs to look cooler and it needs to be more powerful so that we can ultimately, when the uh, a headset like the Oculus Quest is as powerful powerful as an oculus rift we'll be able to do really incredible things with it
1: you can hear more from zilla in our episode about managing immersive productions so in summary the immersive landscape is a really fast moving space and while some of the projects we've talked about took place over the last few years there are some valuable takeaways understanding as much as you can about your audience's behavior as well as how to reach them is key to the success of your piece We've really just skimmed the surface here, but there are some universal themes that are emerging, whether you're in Shanghai or in Bristol. We like being thrilled, but we also like feeling safe. We like going into new worlds, but we like to go with other people. We don't like feeling lost, and being in a familiar space helps to ground us. Well-designed onboarding and offboarding can help to ease us into and out of a new virtual world. Join us for the next episode when we'll be getting a glimpse into how makers are tackling documentary subjects and using immersive tech to bring them to life. We'll be joined by Francesca Panetta from MIT's Centre of Advanced Virtuality and the storyteller from the future, artist Karen Palmer. See you then. Story Futures Academy is the UK's National Centre for Immersive Storytelling and is funded as part of UKRI's Audience of the Future Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund.